You mm-hmm. have many, many conservatives, many white conservatives making the claim, well, why can't I say the N-word? I should be able to say the N-word whenever I want. Well, well I mean, listen, I don't know. Like, y- you should be able to get your ass kicked whenever you want, too. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is the very first episode of Glitter and Doom. Okay, the Doom part of the show is the usual suspects. Racism, sexism, homophobia, systemic inequality, climate change, all the fun stuff. The Glitter? Each week I'll be talking to artists or cultural creators who are fighting back through their work. And we'll be taking a few detours along the way. Who gets to say the N-word? That was one of the topics of conversation when I spoke recently with celebrated author Walter Mosley. The former political theory PhD candidate and computer programmer picked up a pen in the late 80s and has never put it down. Like, really, the only way to explain his prolific output is that he's never not writing. Mosley has produced nearly 50 works of fiction and six of nonfiction. Through his work, Mosley has written into existence the black male heroes he never saw or read growing up. The best known of those is L.A. detective Easy Rollins, who was famously portrayed by Denzel Washington and his biceps in 1995's Devil in a Blue Dress. We spoke about representation, freedom of speech, and his cousin Alberta. Walter, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you have a new book out called The Elements of Fiction. It's called Elements of Fiction. Excuse me, Elements of Fiction. Because if I say the elements, that means like it's everything. But Elements of Fiction means it's some elements. Sure. Yeah. You are you are a voice of the generation. Right. Yeah. It's your second book about the art and craft of writing. The first one was This Year You Write Your Novel. Mm-hmm. Why is it important to you to write about the act of writing? Well, you know, because the act of writing is kind of the most uh, consistent part of my life. So it's something I think about a lot. Uh, and of course, because I'm a lot of times talking uh, to audiences, some of whom are writers or wanted to be writers, they're always asking me, well, how do I do this? How do I do that? How do I write a novel? So I wrote, this year you write your novel because I said, well, I don't have enough time to answer that question, but it's not that long an answer. So here's this little book. But I'm sure that applies to many writers. Why do you feel like it's important that you actively help those people who are asking you for assistance? There are many writers who do write about writing. When I look at what they've written, I you know, usually it's way too long and it has too many comparisons to people like, you know, Dostoevsky and Shakespeare and stuff like that, which like if I have to be Shakespeare in order to write a novel, then I'm never going to write a novel, right? Mm-hmm. In the book you are quite critical of the MFA creative writing system. You write, universities don't make good writers, not any more than war, poverty, chemical imbalance, a good sense of humor, or a parent who loved it when you told stories. Before, I don't know, 1940 or 50 or whatever, nobody ever studied writing in colleges. They just started writing, you know, not Charles Dickens, not Mark Twain, not not, uh, William Shakespeare, not, Mm -hmm. you know, Zola, you know, I mean, like, you know, you just, you know, you read and you and you write and like that's kind of it and, and you know the university they concentrate on things like well um, it's what you wrote is pretty good but it's not Gide. 
you know, and I'm saying, Jeet, you know, who's Jeet? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's ridiculous, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like, oh, well, what about T.S. Eliot? And I said, well, what about T.S. Eliot? You know, I mean, so what? You know, what about Etheridge Knight? You know, he's ever bit as good as T.S. Eliot. You know, he, he learned how to write, write uh, poetry in prison. You know, I mean, I don't know. Okay, if you haven't heard of Etheridge Knight, he was this amazingly talented poet who, as Mosley mentioned, started writing while serving an eight-year prison sentence for robbery. He may not be a household name, but he was nominated for a Pulitzer for his second book of poems, Belly Song, in 1973. He didn't get it. Unrelated, all the Pulitzer Prizes for poetry in the 1970s were awarded to white people. Here's Knight reading an excerpt from his poem, The Violent Space, or When Your Sister Sleeps Around for Money. In this poem, he suggests that young men in prison are the only men who can relate to the fear that women have of being assaulted. Exchange in greed the ungraceful signs, thrust the thick notes between green apple breasts, then the shadow of the devil descends, the violent space cries and angel eyes, large and dark retreat in innocence and in ice. Run, sister, run, the booger man comes. The violent space cries silently like you cried wide years ago in another space, speckled by the sun and the leaves of a green plum tree, and you were stung by a red wasp, and we flew home. Run, sister, run, the booger man comes. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you moan. I boiled my tears in a twisted spoon and danced like an angel on the point of a needle. I cannot yet take hold of the demon and lift his weight from your black belly. So I grab the air and sing my song, but the air cannot stand my singing long. You dedicate the book to John Singleton, um, who you say is one of the most original and creative individuals I've ever known. And you worked with him on Snowfall. Um, Yes. Can you tell me a bit about what it is about John and the way that he approached his work that you admired so much? I don't know about approaching his work. That's an interesting phrase with John. John John was a genius in the two different ways that you can be a genius, right? You know, these are my own definitions. Well, one is anyway. Like one is a person who sees a world that nobody else sees. It's all it's in front of us, but nobody else like looks at it in a way that they can articulate it. So you know, uh, John was in the hood of South Central LA. He saw it, he understood it, and he could make a story out of it. You know, uh, that's extraordinary. But also, he was a member of that that group, and that's like the original term of genius. The original term of genius is you're a person who, if I talk to you, I will understand your your culture, your milieu, your people because you are so much a part of that, that everything you do and say explains who you are, where you come from, what your culture is. John was both of those things, mm. and, and, it, and it was kind of wonderful. So much of his work features black male heroes. 
Uh-huh. Um, and you yourself are famous for writing about black male heroes. I'm curious, when you were growing up, were there black characters who you saw in fiction or in movies or on television who you looked up to? No. No, as a rule, it didn't happen. And it's so interesting because, you know, there, there's a whole, like, kind of white world where, you know, you have, you know, the black sidekick. You know, he's a, you know, a shoeshine, a, a caddy, a, a pimp, a drug dealer, whatever, you know, just kind of like somebody who's a very kind of really specific kind of identity, you know, that helps the story along. And is that what motivated you to write the types of characters that you write? Did you set out to make the types of characters who you wanted to see? No, I just start writing. And I then I look back on my writing and say, hey, I'm writing about black male heroes. That's interesting. It's cool, cause, you know, why, why, and I ask myself, why are you doing that? So, well, my father was a hero. His friends were my heroes. The people, in, you know, the black men in my neighborhood were heroes. Tell me a bit about your father. He served in World War II, is that right? Yeah, he was, he was in World War II. But, you know, it was the interesting thing. He would say to me, Walter, you know, remember, never volunteer. You know, that was like the kind of stuff he'd say to me. He was born in Louisiana, but he was raised from the age of nine in Fifth Ward, Houston, Texas, which was very tough back then. And so he, he, but at some point or another, he ends up, like, he has to go to the, the war. So it's like 43, I think. And he goes, you know, to the war and he goes with like 100 other people from that area, black people. Uh, most of them came back. Some of them died. None of them got shot. You know, some of them were, you know, got diseases. Some of them, you know, things happened. But most of them, 93 of 100, came back. Most of the people he knew in Fifth War, Houston, Texas, were dead. And so he realized, he said, I was safer in the biggest war in history than I would have been in my own bed in Fifth Ward, Houston, Texas. And that's why he left Texas and came to Los Angeles. He said, it's, it's better here. People don't die as often, you know. Easy Rollins, perhaps the character who you're most famous for, also uh, served in World War II. Yep. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about this moment in black American history where you have black servicemen who have served their country abroad, um, have fought in Europe, and are now coming back to the United States. My father, you know, my father understood racism in the South. He wasn't, he wasn't about to go up against it because there was, was no going up against it, you know, in 1946. So instead he came to, you know, to Los Angeles and he, and he lived there. And so if you came to L.A., you could have a job because they had so much work to do. They couldn't, they couldn't say, I'm not going to hire you because you're black. Uh, you could buy a house. You could buy a car. You could have kids. You could send the kids to college. And when, when I was a kid, my father said to me, he said, Walter, if you want to do as well as the white man, you have to go to work a half an hour early. And, and you have to leave a half an hour later. And he said, if you want to do better than the white man, you got to come in an hour early. And you have to leave an hour later. And I said, but Dad, that's not fair. And he goes, that's right. And that was the end of our conversation. Systemic racism is is almost, I mean, it's a character in all of the novels. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you would describe it as a character, but mm-hmm. it, it is palpable and it is the backdrop against which so many elements of the plot unfold. Um, I'll just read a, a couple different passages, if you sure. don't mind. Um, I thought of all the black men and women I knew who woke up angry and went to bed in the same state of mind. Life was like a bruise for us. We examine every action for potential threats, insults, and cheats. And if you look hard enough, you will find what you're looking for. Mm. And then another passage, this is easy, encountering two white cops. Um, 
They were both young and white and male and had been after me as long as all three of us had lived. Did you ever get any pushback from your editors about, you know, could you be a little less heavy-handed about the police brutality, about the over-policing, um, about, you know, about racially motivated violence, or mainly have you worked with editors who allowed you to write whatever you wanted about this? I don't this? care what editors say, but <laughs> I, I just want to say, I, I say, to begin with, I'm never heavy-handed talking about this stuff. You know, it, it, what, what it is, is it's always like, you know, a, a, you know, a celebration of one sort or another, either positive or negative. I agree that you're never heavy-handed, but you also never back down from portraying it. For example, yeah. you know, in every book, multiple times, there are encounters with white cops mm -hmm. who are harassing Easy just for living, mm -hmm. or a white person who wants to know what his business is, you know, in a in a in an office building, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. And I think that another author might say, well, you know, I don't really need to paint that interaction. It's not important. It's not crucial to this character's <laughs> world. Right. Well, yeah, and you might. But whether or not it's crucial or not, if you if you have like a like a black character uh, uh, in in the you know the 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 forties, fifties, sixties, pretty soon I'll be in the seventies, moving around and not being stopped, then it becomes like kind of like science fiction. Because black, black men, you, you're a black man, you're driving down the street. You're driving in a Cadillac. You got a white girl sitting next to you in the car. You get stopped on 47th Street. Then you get stopped on 34th Street. And then you get stopped on 23rd Street. Because they're going to, the police won't see you and say, oh, there's something wrong here. Right. You know? Right. So if I don't write that, then then you don't understand what it's like for this guy to get from A to B. Like most people go to A to B, you know, like if you have a white detective, you know, Raymond Chandler, you know, like A to B. But if it's a black guy, it's well A to A.2 to A.6 to A.9 to B. Right. You know, and, 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 you know, if I didn't write that, then I wouldn't be writing about the place I know. You mentioned these different time periods. You started out in the 40s, in the mm -hmm. late 40s. Why did you choose to set the Easy Rollins character um, and these mysteries in the past rather than in the present? And you've gone on to write other mysteries and other works of fiction that are set in present day. Yeah. But what was it that you wanted to explore about that time period? Well, I, I think that the, the thing about uh, uh, literature, fiction, is that if you're not in the fiction, you're not in history. Because as much as people might argue, they don't read books about history. You know, they're not interested in books about history. But if you read a, a book in which uh, there's a black detective in South Central working for some white guy on the West Side to find a woman who uh, everybody thinks is white, but really she's black. Um, spoiler. Yeah, well, for easy for Devil in a Blue Dress, <laughs> it shouldn't be a spoiler. If I don't write about that, then then those characters, those people I knew, are not going to be part of the culture. Do you see your works of fiction as political? Do you see that as a political act? Well, I think any good literature is political. I like because human beings are political. So like like if you write something that's not political, then it's, you know, it's kind of fantasy. And, and which is fine. If you want Lord of the Rings, you want to write that, that's great. You know, I like that book. In in most, you know, contemporary, you know, novels about, you know, life of people that we know who live in this world. There, there are politics involved, you know. Like, for instance, if you wrote about a woman in, in uh, 1900 in Baltimore and you didn't add that she couldn't own property, she couldn't control her children, and she couldn't vote, if you didn't say those things, then it's not real. It, it, it doesn't have, like, you know, gravity. And you, you, need, you need gravity. 
I think that plenty of men would write that story and leave out those important details. Uh, You know, I don't know. I mean, if (laughs) if they do, they're they're wrong. Well, just as you were saying that the way that black characters were portrayed, Mm -hmm. you know, are these sort of like stock characters who don't have any uh, real history, who are just there to move the plot for a white character forward. Written by white white people, they aren't talking about the background or the context against which those black characters need to be thought about. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I listen. That's it's very true. You know, uh, I'm I'm hoping that there's some. You know, you look at somebody like uh, uh, um, that's so interesting. That in, in his time, in their time, Nathaniel Hawthorne was the most important writer in America. All right, uh, I think he's an awful writer, but he was the most popular writer in America and most important. And Melville was hardly anything, but mm-hmm. Herman Melville was ex- infinitely a better writer. Mm-hmm. If you get, you know, Hawthorne is writing about, you know, uh, New England, which is the, the center of the slave trade at that time. There are no black people mm. in the book, you know. But Melville, you you have like this multiracial, like, you know, um, whaling ship, you know, uh, black people, uh, uh, people from, you know, the... Uh, uh, the South Pacific, uh, from from Asia, you know, a Native American. Everybody's out on that ship, you know, and you know, and he was, and he talked about it in a way that you understood, you know, the diversity of cultures coming together to create the new world. I'll criticize Hawthorne because I, because you know, when I don't like his writing, but also I don't like what he's writing about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but Melville, I go, wow, man, he really he knew what he was doing. Same thing about Mark Twain. You know, I mean, you have people who actually talk about the world we live in. Hello. Hi, Emily. This is Mackenzie. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm well. Um, Where are we reaching you right now? I am at Washington University in St. Louis. And I, I take it that's where you go to school? Question for you. When you were in high school or maybe junior high, did you have to read any Nathaniel Hawthorne? Yes, I did. So when I was in middle eighth grade, um, The Scarlet Letter was on my reading list. What did you think of it? Really not a fan. Um, It was very long, a lot of confusing language. There's a lot of really heavy symbolism, a lot of really obvious symbolism, and Hawthorne really just drives that into the ground. And it's very long-winded. So if you are going to give Scarlet Letter one to five stars um, on your book report review, how many are you giving it? Maybe three stars. I just think there's so much amazing literature out there that schools could be assigning instead. I know my friends in high school who were assigned it, none of them read it. They all looked it up on Spark Notes. And by contrast, senior year of high school, we read... Books like The Kite Runner, The Tortilla Curtain, or books that were written by writers of color, disabled writers, queer writers, female writers, and people read those books because they were interesting. And it's not, it's not about just trying to get different identities in there, but also just because those people had different experiences and different styles of writing, and they are really well written. And I think that's, that gets kids to read. And at some point, at some level, that's the point of a high school English class is to get kids to read and to get them thinking about ideas in the world around them. 
you actually had a publisher tell you that they didn't want to touch your book because white people don't read about black people, mm -hmm. black people don't like black men, and black men don't read. Black women don't like black men, and black men don't read. Ah, mm. And 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 uh, but you know, but black men slowly over a period of time start reading my books because they recognize the characters in the books, you know, and 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 so and that's kind of political in a way, but it's also saying no, 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 come on, no, you guys can come to the party too. We're having a party, and all these people are hanging out. So we're not, we're not gonna go. No, no, come on, come on, man, we got some good liquor up in here, you know. You should come. You gotta have a good time. So really, yeah, mm -hmm. got music, got dancing, you know, and uh, but if it has to be something that people recognize, right? You are read widely by black men, but also by other people as well, obviously, um, including Bill Clinton, who famously said that you were one of his favorite authors. When you started writing, did you anticipate that the Bill Clintons of the world were going to be reading you, or did you have a specific audience in mind? No. no. I mean, yes. I mean, my cousin Alberta, who died many, many years ago. I mean, if I were to tell somebody a story like this, I would be telling Alberta. So I imagine telling her the story and other people overhearing it. Tell me about Alberta. Oh, she's my cousin. I loved her. She was wonderful. She used to take care of me when I was a little kid. She babysit for me when my parents had to, you know, when to go out or something. And she was just, she loved me. She was great. We had a wonderful time together. You know, black woman. She lived in, a, in, a, in an apartment that, like, maybe from your your chair to my couch, that was it. That was the size of it. And but we had a we had a great time together. And uh, she was a really good person. You know, we watched movies together, you know, The Mummy. I really, I so much remember watching The Mummy with her, Boris Karloff, you know. It was like, you know, that was so cool. Did she live to read your published work? No. No, she didn't live that long. What were you thinking about when you're like, I wish I could tell Alberta this story? What What were the... No, no, I didn't. It's not that I wished. I mm. just... I imagine telling Alberta the story because I thought she'd go... I said, well, you know, uh, Easy was doing okay, but then he ran into Mouse. She said, oh, no. Mouse, oh, you know, he shouldn't be messing around with him. I said, no, but, you know, they're friends, Alberta. They raised together. I know, but, you know, Mouse, he's just so rough, you know, that kind of stuff. You know? Yeah. It's okay if I go out with him, but, you know, easy to leave him alone. We talked about losing John Singleton mm -hmm. earlier this year. Um, and, of course, we also lost Toni Morrison recently. Yeah. Um, you were featured in the recent documentary that came out about her, Toni Morrison, The mm -hmm. Pieces I Am. And you tell a story where you, I think it's a conversation that you overheard, where you you heard somebody say, I love Toni Morrison because her novels transcend race. <laughs> yeah. What What do you think about that comment? Well, I mean, that's not enough of the thing. Right. Because please, one, give the whole... Because one person says, mm -hmm. I love Toni Morrison because her novels transcend race. And the other next person says, I love Toni Morrison because she's not afraid to be black. Right. You know, if, you know, the idea of transcending race, that's like saying uh, Shakespeare wrote plays that were beyond race. Right. Nobody ever says that. No. About Charles Dickens, right? Oh, he, he transcends race. Right. That's why he's in the canon. Exactly. Tony told about stories that, that made everybody say, wow, we will transcend race by understanding this story. Not that the story <laughs> transcends race for us reading it, you know, this thing, wow. You know, and, you know, yeah, Tony's an amazing writer. I want to switch gears a bit and okay. talk about your recent op-ed in the mm. New York Times called Why I Quit the Writer's Room. Mm -hmm. Will you tell me what happened? I was in a writer's room. and Are know, we saying what the writer's room I'm was? Not. Okay, I mean, you, not, people but, can Google it. Yeah, but I was in a writer's room, 
And, um, you know, things are going okay. You know, I mean, you know, there's always, you know, conflict and is this right and that right. But, you know, it was going all right. But then one day I get a call, like three weeks from HR, and they say, we hear that you use the N-word in the writer's room. And I said, well, you know, I, I am the N-word in the writer's room. And they said, well, you can't use that word. I said, really? They said, yes, well, you could write it. If it's in a script, you can write that word. But you can't say that word. I said, I can't say nigger in a writer's room? If I'm just telling a story, am I calling somebody that? And they go, no. I said, oh, okay. And then I went home. I, you know, I never came back. I just went home. And, um, and I was so mad, you know, partly because of being a black man in America, not being able to, to use a word that been, I've been oppressed by for 400 years. And, and the way I used it was about that oppression. It was about a police officer. Yeah, interact. police officer, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But also, I was worried. I, I'm American, right? I, I don't have freedom of speech. And if I use freedom of speech, I don't have the right to pursue happiness, which means I have a job, you know? Uh, and the person who blamed me, uh, who said I said it, and they were right, I did, um, they wouldn't even tell me who it was. So it was kind of like McCarthy. You know, so I wrote the, you know, the to- uh, this op-ed piece, and it, it came out in the Times. And, uh, you know, I was, I was very happy about it. I was very happy to, to have that argument with people, black and white, mm-hmm. about, you know, my right to use, and, and everybody's right to use whatever word they want. So somebody said to me, oh, wait a second, you said something that made me feel uncomfortable. I'm like, okay. I got a president. Ninety percent of the stuff he says makes me feel uncomfortable. But, I think uncomfortable know. would be downplaying the yeah. feeling that most of us feel. <laughs> but, you know, I... But I'm, you know, I'm not fine with it. I'm uncomfortable with it. But however, he has a right to say what he wants. I have a right to say what I want. So if somebody in the writer's room, a white person, had used the N-word in your presence, what would you have done or said? Well, I might have felt uncomfortable about it, you know, but I certainly wouldn't call HR and say, we need to stop that person from talking like that, you know. Uh, I mean, depending on how, you know how they were using language, if if they were you know you know bullying somebody or harassing somebody or attacking, that's different. Can I just get you to say your name uh, and maybe where you live? My name is Mike Hayward. I live in Brooklyn, New York. And how would you describe your racial heritage? I have to say African American, but that's what we call it these days. So that's my culture, you know. And my question for you is, do you think it is okay to say the N-word? And if so, who gets to say it and who doesn't get to say it? This is how I feel about the N-word. It's our fault when people we use it now, and then when somebody outside of our culture calls it and they get upset, don't get upset because there's people in our culture that are saying it amongst each other as if it's normal. So I say, if somebody else is going to use the N-word, fine. I don't use the word. Uh, my name is Baloo. Um, I identify as African-American. Well, I think it's layered. I don't think that it's something that is just like somebody can and somebody can't. Um, I feel like there's a lot of words that were derogatory that now a lot of marginalized groups have been reclaiming. Um, so I think that uh, if you are part of those groups, then you may. But if you are not, then obviously going to seem as derogatory and disrespectful. Could I just ask your name, please? Andrew Lockhart. And Andrew, how do you identify in terms of racial background? Caribbean. Okay. My question for you is, is it okay to say the N-word? And if so, who's allowed to say it and who is it? <laughs> You're asking the wrong... I use it all the time with the ER. 
because it just depowers it. It's just six letters. That's all it is. Some of my friends don't like it. Some of them don't. I don't care. And do you think that everyone should be allowed to use it? I mean, it's just use. It's all context. I can tell if someone's being derogatory to me or not. It's that simple. If you can't, you're stupid. It's not rocket science. I'm Kay, the letter. And how would you identify as far as your racial background? Oh, I'm white as hell. Do you think it's okay to use the N-word? And if so, who gets to use it and who doesn't get to use it? Uh, well, for myself, no, never, no times. I've never used that word. And uh, as far as who can use it, that is absolutely not up for me to determine. You inadvertently or perhaps very advertently have stumbled into something of a culture war, right? Because you mm-hmm. have many um, many conservatives, many white conservatives, making the claim, well, why can't I say the N-word? I should be able to say the N-word whenever I want. Well, well I mean, listen, I don't know. Like, y- you should be able to get your ass kicked whenever you want, too. But, like, <laughs> you see, my, my problem is with liberals who are saying, to me, a black man in America, that I can't use a word. People have come up to me and said, we should have a movement to make the Confederate flag illegal. I'm like, no. People people have rights to to do, you know, to say what they want, to do what they want, to have emblems. And also, I would rather see a a Confederate flag on somebody's forehead. You know, if it's in his head, it might as well be on his head too. Sure, sure. It's okay. Take that clam mask off. Yeah. Okay, I want to take that a step further because... For example, take the Charlottesville rally, right? You have all of these Nazis uh-huh. marching like idiots. Uh-huh. If I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about if I'm an employer and I see a video of somebody I employ, you know, with a tiki torch yelling, Jews will not replace us. Uh-huh. I don't want him to work for me. Yeah. And, but you know, I mean, this that's a tough thing because- if if what if you're you know like what if you're like you know deeply 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 homophobic right and and you have like your employee out there saying you know gay rights and all kinds of other stuff do you have the right to fire that person i would say immediately no you don't have a right cuz i know if i take away his rights or her rights i'm going to end up taking away my own i do understand that yeah. and i agree with you i think personally you be uncomfortable Right. But I also think, you know, I think that it is a appalling that we do not have federal protections for gender identity and sexuality, that you can be fired for being gay in many states across the nation. Yeah, that's and that's and that shouldn't be that shouldn't be. But I I personally think that is because (laughs) it should be included in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which says that you can't be fired based on your race, your nationality. To me, gender identity and sexuality is something that you are innately born with, whereas somebody expressing his jackass opinion that Jews will not replace us. He's not born with that. He's just being an idiot. Listen, in order to express yourself, you don't. Have, you can be stupid and express yourself. You can, you can all the time. You, you can run up and down the street saying the world is flat. The world is flat. You know. And I want to be perfectly clear that I think that it was ridiculous that you got the call that you did, and I think that black yeah. people should That's, be able to use the N word. And I personally think well, that I white think it, people should shouldn't look. They can use it, but please don't. Well, and, and and right, and somebody might say that to me. He says you can do that, Walter, but please don't. And I may or may not, you know, agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know. One of the things that I want to I want to worry about is like, even if let's say you have an opinion and you you express that opinion and it's wrong, and then you and I get in a room together and we we discuss it, 
it might get better. I'm not saying it will. Sure. It, but it might get no, better. No, I believe in that. And and I'm I'm much more worried about going to this. I'm going to fire you. This is the first thing. We're going to get rid of you. Like, you know, I mean, that's really because what it does is it, it demands silence. And the one thing that we can't ask of anybody is silence. Mm-hmm. You know, I I don't like what you say. I don't want to hear what you say. I might get up and walk out of the room when you say it, but I I I can't ask you to be silent. I can right. ask you not to do certain things. Sure. Yeah, and it's not helpful to have people feel like they can't work through their complicated right. worldviews, right? right? Like we do want to be able to help people reach a higher plane, right. if you will. But at the same time, the question of consequences, right? We're like, well, you can say whatever you want, but I also you know, might kick your ass for it. The stakes become even higher when you're talking about Hollywood, right? Because there are so few opportunities, um, or there are few opportunities and the visibility is higher. I'm thinking of um, Roseanne, Uh right, who got fired immediately after she made some comment about Valerie Jarrett being the love child of the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes. And ABC was like, we're done. Humans aren't social beings. We're semi-social beings, you know. Honeybees are social beings. They, They get along perfectly. One honeybee doesn't turn to the other one and say, hey, wait a second, uh, I collected more pollen than that bitch. You know, that doesn't happen. They, say, they, they go out, they get as much pollen as possible, they get back up in the, in the, in the in a hive, and they, and they do their work. That's it. You know, and you, and you kind of have to love that. We are not like that. We're like struggling, we're fighting, and we have to, we have to struggle in order to learn. There's a dialectic to our experience of learning. And that's all I was saying in, in the essay. I said, you know, I can say what I want. You can feel uncomfortable about it. But you can't take away my right to work because you're uncomfortable and your boss thinks he might get sued. Hi, is this Professor Caroline Malik Corbin? Yes. And you are a professor of law at the University of Miami? I am a professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law. Okay. And do you have a particular specialty or focus? Uh, My specialty is the First Amendment. Well, it just so happens I'm here to talk to you about the First Amendment. So my question for you is, you know, so often we hear of cases where an individual says something racist or otherwise hate-filled. And when they face consequences like losing their job, people often say, oh, well, that's a violation of their First Amendment rights. Is it? Basically... Only the government can violate your First Amendment free speech rights. So the Bill of Rights are written to protect us against the government, not private entities. So if your employer finds that you've said something racist on Twitter, for example, they're allowed to terminate your contract. Is that right? If your employer is a private employer, then their uh, decision to fire you does not raise First Amendment issues, so long as it's not for a um, discriminatory reason. So they can't fire you because of your race or your sex and things like that. So what protections does the free speech clause in the First Amendment offer? If the government is punishing you, then clearly you may have a free speech violation. So if the government is fining you or arresting you or somehow penalizing you, 
then your free speech rights may be at play. And whether they are or not depends on a whole host of considerations because the free speech clause carves out certain categories of speech that says, you know what, even if it's a speech, the government can still punish you for it. So, for example, defamation is a category of speech that is not protected by the free speech clause. And incitement to violence is also a category of speech that's not protected by the free speech clause. So sort of in summation, our First Amendment free speech clause protects a wide range of speech, including hate speech. However, if you work for a private employer and you use hate speech, there's nothing unless you signed a specific contract that would prevent them from being able to fire you because of your language. That is a very nice summary. Yes. Do you feel like that arc is bending towards justice? And what would you say about the current moment that we're in? Wow. Anytime up to about 15 years ago, if somebody said the economy was getting stronger, that meant that working men and women, the working class, most of America, would be doing better. In the last 10 or 15 years, the economy gets stronger, but working people are not getting better. Meaning to say, corporations are healthier, but the workers are more and more at risk. Mm -hmm. That's getting worse. Now, if you talk about people of different uh, uh, genders, ages, and races, understanding each other more, I think that's probably true. Uh, even though there's still a lot of conflict, I think it's probably true that people are uh, getting along better for, you know, for many reasons, a lot of which have to do with capitalism. But are we doing better? Hell no. You know, problem is, is that a white person, a black person, a brown person might not uh, agree with each other on that. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, like, like a white person is having trouble because they can't retire and they're blaming the brown person. The brown person is blaming the white person. The black person says, well, both of them are causing me trouble. Really, it's not the case. So that separation, that like kind of, you know, vestigial memory of racial difference, we're, we're blaming each other maybe when indeed it's the system itself that's like, you know, coming down hard on us. Right. Yeah. I mean, we have this moment of such tremendous inequality, as you mentioned, where the top 0.5% keep on getting richer and corporations are individuals. Mm -hmm. And yet you have working class white Americans who are not getting ahead because of the system, who are still voting perhaps against their own interests. Really? And some might say that it's motivated by racial animus, that, that... I don't think that. You don't I, think so? I don't think it's... Well, because I think it's the same problem with black people and mm. Hispanic people and Asian people. It really, honestly, you could just go down the street. What class are you? What class are you? They all think they're middle class, and they actually vote for that, and they, they believe in that. You know, it's just, it's just... It's crazy. You know, I, I think there are a lot of, like, you know, uh, white people who blame black people uh, erroneously. I also think there's a lot of black people who blame white people erroneously. It's that, because 
if you're if I'm blaming you, if if both of us are being oppressed from an outside system and I'm blaming you and you're blaming me, we're both wrong. My yeah. only response to that is that, you know, when white people say, oh, you know, I'm not getting ahead. My child's mm-hmm. life isn't going to be better than mine like mm-hmm. it was in previous generations. And it's because of black people. They're yeah, wrong. They're wrong. But yeah. when black people say that, uh, it's because of white people. They're not entirely wrong. No, but they're they're wrong enough that there's no way to get something back from them. Mm-hmm. The only way for us to make it work is for us to work together. Right, systems yeah. Yeah, rather right. than individuals. Right, and and you know, listen, sexism inside of that is a big thing. Women, you know, women make met less than men for doing the same jobs. Right. I mean, that's true. That has to be fixed. But you know, capitalism would fix it if they could make more money off it. <laughs> capitalism itself doesn't care. It doesn't care if you're a man or woman, black or white. It just doesn't care. What it cares about is profit, the, the most profit, you know, from the least expenditure. That's what it wants. You know, because racism is, I will not hang out with that nigga. I don't care what, right? Capitalism is like, well, where, where's the most profit? And all of capitalism is after it. So, I, you know, yes, there's racism. You know, there's patriarchy. There's all this stuff. I'm not trying to deny that. But... I think that the best way for us to deal with it is to say, oh, no, no, the, the, systemically, uh, the economic system wants to destroy us. They want to crush us down the least possible profit we can make. The reason that America gave up on slavery is because there's more profit when the worker owns their own chains. Hmm. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. the way it is, you know, and we see it right now. I mean, black people have known this for a long time. Now everybody's experiencing mm-hmm. it, you know, and that's how uh, that's how I look at it. I'm not denying that there's racism, there's sexism, there's ageism, all of that stuff, you know. But I understand that in the last 15 years, the country is economically stronger, but the workers are economically weaker. Right. So we need to work together, and I, I believe that, you know, but. I don't think that me being silent is going to help us work together. Walter Mosley, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure. It was lots of fun. Um, And the book, Elements of Fiction, Mm -hmm. uh, out now wherever books are sold. Yep. The recording of the Etheridge Night Poetry Reading came courtesy of the Lackawanna Valley Digital Archives and the Scranton Public Library. So that was our very first show. Thank you so much for listening. If you are so inclined, it really helps to have reviews of the show on iTunes. So we would really appreciate that if you would have a moment to do that. And also, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hagaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 